This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. All right, hello everyone. Good evening. You know, yesterday morning uh, when I woke up, uh, the city was covered in fog. And um, it had that, that particular quiet that, um, that is present when you can't see the sun. You know, different from, from when it's snowing, but a, a kind of, of hush. And um, it made me think of the different uh, gradients of silence. And I went through my morning routine, um, which involves tea and a chocolate chip cookie, first thing. And I sat, and then I went out for my run through the, the quiet Brooklyn streets. And I was just feeling very much the, the wondrousness and the fragility of this human life, you know, this very delicate balance uh, that determines whether we are here or not, whether we're conscious or not, able-bodied or not, free or not. And I was feeling extremely grateful that I am all of these things. Well, the free part I'm still, I'm still working on, but that I'm here, that I'm conscious, that I'm able-bodied, at least now. And I was running back and I was just thinking of this uh, seven-year-old boy whom I teach and he's not big in size at all, but his presence is, is very big. And his relationship with, with space and with things is um, it's, it's a little bit challenged. Uh, he doesn't always know where he ends and things begin. And he can be a, a bit rough. And, you know, I just, I just think he's, he's kind of this, this, this small package of what can sometimes be our own fumbling, right? As we, as we move through life, kind of bumping into things and people and breaking things. Uh, but he's, he's a kid. So, um, you know, in him, it's, it's acceptable, if you will. But I was asked to teach him, you know, to, to be a bit more aware, aware of his actions, aware of his speech, his energy, and how he uses it and aware of things. And we've been meeting every week for some months now. So I've gotten to, to know him a little bit. And I was looking for, you know, different ways to engage him. And of course, we're doing this via Zoom, which just adds a little bit of, of challenge to it, especially because I didn't know him before. And I came up with this idea of a, a ninja academy Nico's Ninja Academy. 
And when I saw that written down, I thought it sounds a little bit like he's run by the mafia. <laughs> I don't know why I came up with that name, but that's the name that came to me. And in this academy, you know, there are kids, the neighborhood kids, like Loud Emily and Billy the Destroyer and Bull in a China Shop Harry. You know, they come to train. They come to train with Nico, the ninja master. And now this, this boy that I'm working with also. And, and I set down like five, five rules, five cardinal rules, um, which are ninja focus, ninja voice, ninja flow, ninja ki as in chi, as in energy, and ninja kind. And I won't put you through what all of these are. But um, as I was working through this in the last couple of weeks, it reminded me of a dream I've always had of a Bodhisattva Academy, uh, a training place for, for the systematic learning on how to be a human being. You know, I mean, people train to be Navy SEALs, free divers and stockbrokers, chefs. And in fact, I work with a previous stockbroker as well, who had a, was very high up in, in one of the big firms on Wall Street. And um, he's described working 100-hour weeks. Now, there's 168 hours in a week. So if you're working for 100 of those hours, imagine everything that you're not doing. From, of course, spending time you know, with family, and, but just like basic human functions. And he's described a little bit of what that was like and how he got through it. And it was not pretty. And so, you know, we train for all sorts of things without giving it a second thought. Devoting, you know, those 10,000 hours that are supposed to, to develop our mastery. And so in this Bodhisattva Academy, we would train for awakening, for attaining depth and humanity, clear comprehension, as the sutras call it. And of course, these academies already exist. You know, monasteries are exactly this. They train the body, they train the mind, the spirit. They train the heart and the brain. At their best, I mean, at their best, that's what they're, they're meant to do. You know, sometimes you can kind of get caught up in, in bureaucracy. Years ago, I was, when I was still at the monastery, there was some kind of bureaucratic muddle that we were wrapped in. And I described this to a friend and she just wrote me a one-line email that said, um, institutions where utopia goes to die. <laughs> I thought that was perfect. I still have the email actually. But when they're working, when these academies are working, they're archives of sanity as my teacher used to call them. And of course, this isn't just monasteries, you know, retreat centers. Um, and and my, my, in my vision, in my dream, um, it wasn't really a monastery. It was, uh, it was um, well, it was more like an academy, you know, where people would, would come and really study and train, but then they would go out. They would go out into the world. And you would learn about resilience and endurance 
in the face of difficulty and flexibility, kindness, kindness, kindness. And I, I think of these, these places, and this is, this is a practice place, right? I think of them as, as eddies, right? So in the stream and the push and the rush of life, you know, the urgency of doing and attaining and becoming. In these eddies, you know, you slow down. You quiet down enough so that you can see, oh, I'm, I'm floating in the water and I'm going somewhere. Life is happening all around me. Sometimes it seems to be happening to me. So what's my role in this? What's my agency? And Thomas Merton um, once said that a monk's life is pointless in that that is its very point, that its pointlessness is the point. And speaking of monasteries, he said, in a world of noise, confusion and conflict, it is necessary for there to be places of silence, of inner discipline and peace. Not the peace of mere relaxation, he said, but the peace of inner clarity and love based on ascetic renunciation. And that's a bit top heavy as phrases go, ascetic renunciation. Just letting go of the noise, letting go of the bustle in favor of, of profound stillness and silence. Letting go of our chatter, you know, the chatter that covers up our, our loneliness. Letting go of distraction or overwork that, uh, that uh, buffers us from our fear, from our insecurity. Essentially, letting go of what distracts us, what keeps us from being close, being intimate with ourselves, with our lives, being here now. And these, these places of practice, these refuges would foster silence in our lives. What I, what I really consider an ever dwindling resource. And of course, not all silence is created equal by any means. But here I'm really speaking of, of a silence of, you know, what Christians called kenosis, self-emptying. Because in our daily lives, you know, we produce, we produce, we produce, you know, there's self, self, self all over the place. And so in the stillness and silence of zazen, of meditation, contemplation, we stop, right? Or we try to, and we empty ourselves of ourselves so that life can pour through. Like that, that koan, right, that I spoke of before, when the eye of the spring is obstructed, sand is in the way. When the eye of the way is obstructed, what is in the way? In other words, where is the problem? And, you know, coincidentally, I was writing this, I started writing this a couple days ago, and I, I mentioned, you know, free divers. And coincidentally, this morning, I was reading a, an article on New York Times uh, about a Russian free diver, 
Natalia Molchanova. And she set uh, all of these world records over a number of years. And this is what she said of free diving. She said, you know, it's not only a sport, but it's a way to understand who we are. When we go down, if we don't think, we understand we are whole. We are one with world. When we think, we are separate. On surface, it is natural to think, and we have many information inside. And these are her, her words. We need to reset sometimes. Free diving helps to do that. And I was trying to imagine that space to be that intimate with breath, to be that intimate with space and with silence underwater. And she actually disappeared 2015 and she was doing a, what for her was a, a fun dive, a series of fun dives with friends. And she went down and never came up and they never found her. Imagine that. But she's right, when we think we're separate. And that's, I mean, that's really the crux. So it really, I mean, whether you're doing formal meditation or you're doing, you know, ecstatic dance or running or diving or surfing, it's the doing that something completely where thinking stops. That is the key. And of course, the advantage of meditation is that it comes that it comes with a whole framework with which to understand what happens when that experience takes place. So it's not just being in the zone, but it's understanding through it through what it means to say when we say we are whole. In your body, in your mind, in your soul. So easy to say, but what does that actually mean? And so this is, this is my fantasy. This is my dream, you know, that there's a, a legion of bodhisattvas doing this work. That together we're fighting, we're fighting the quiet fight. And stealth, stealthily, you know, like ninjas, we would, we would infiltrate, you know, schools and boardrooms and banks and courthouses and we'd be in families, right in, the, in, right in the middle of those relationships with loved ones and children, parents. And we would do the unexpected thing, the revolutionary thing. When hurt, we would not hurt another. We wouldn't blame. We wouldn't justify, we wouldn't excuse ourselves. We wouldn't hate on another. We wouldn't be aggressive or passive aggressive. We wouldn't harden, we wouldn't lash out. At least some of the time. And this would absolutely require quite a bit of training. I mean, just think of the last time that you were hurt by someone else. What did you do? What did you do in your mind? And then what did you actually do? How, how incredibly demanding it is to just hold that hurt 
to just hold it and not act it out is in fact, I would say, a form of renunciation. I renounce my right to be right, to be vindicated. And if you think about it, what good does it do anyway? Not that you should just accept the hurt, you know, just take it. But that impulse, that impulse to, to, to kick, what good does it do? And I wanted to mention, I, I meant to do it last week, but I, it slipped my mind. A couple of weeks ago, I sat uh, Tangario with four people who wanted to formalize a teacher-student relationship, Norm and Brian and um, Hunter and Jess Plum, who can't usually be here on Wednesdays because she's in England. So the time difference is a little much for her. And you know, Tangario, Tanga means um, staying until the morning and Rio means the, the room. So it's the room where monks would stay when they were on pilgrimage. And um, at a certain point, it became a tradition, you know, monks would stand outside the monastery gates in the snow, in the rain, in the sun, you know, just showing their zeal. And then they would be let in eventually, and then they would go into a room where they would spend seven days sitting uninterruptedly. And they would eat very little, drink very little, and they would just sit. That's it. And uh, that was the test, if you will, of, of their earnestness. And then they would be let in to their seat, to their place of practice that was quite literally where they lived. I mean, where they sat was where they slept, where they ate, where they did everything, basically. And, you know, we did a very, very, we did a few hours <laughs> of sitting and I sat with them. And, um, you know, and I was saying to them afterwards, we had tea over Zoom. And I was saying, you know, that these stories that have come down to us, especially in, in Zen, of this, this heroism, you know, this, um, you know, some of them are quite, quite dramatic. But really, the real heroism, in my humble opinion, is showing up, showing up again and again for your life, right? To decide to be in our lives in this moment. To, to say, you know, today I won't shut down. I won't let myself off. I won't watch if things slide. Just today or just this moment, I'm not going to turn away. I won't avoid, I won't close my eyes. Right, I won't blame, I won't project, I won't deflect. I will own my thoughts, my actions, my words. And I will relate to you with love and with respect and with the knowledge that we are in fact connected in a way that I can't even understand. We've talked about this quite a bit, but talking about it, we can't really understand this connection, not intellectually, fortunately. And to me, that's really what's heroic. 
and also utterly ordinary in what we are built for as human beings. And so I said to them, you know, I, I think of it this less as them becoming my students, but that we're really, we're standing side by side and we're facing the same direction. We're facing reality together. And we're saying, help me to be and stay awake. And you know, over the years, people ask me, you know, when I go home and my father introduces me, you know, to a friend or something, you know, and they say, oh, you know, what do you do? And I say, well, you know, I teach meditation, I teach Buddhism. And invariably, people will just smile and nod and say, oh, that's so nice. Like I just told them I'm going off to camp. <laughs> invariably, this happens. And so, you know, I've, I've been thinking, you know, just what could I say that, that would give this, you know, just a little more gravitas, you know, that would, that would communicate a little more what it is that I, that I do. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, I could say I'm a student of reality. That would still be a little abstract, but that would be closer to the truth. I could say, you know, my job, or, or I've made it my, my business, my purpose to learn to see what I can't yet see. And I'm trying to help others to do that. The poet William Stafford said, your job is to figure out what the world is trying to be, what this world is trying to be, what this world really is, I think is a more accurate way of saying it. And as I've shared with you, um, you know, I've been grappling lately, you know, with, with that question, you know, is Buddhism enough, you know, given the relentlessness, you know, of the violence and the instability and the conflict, the hatred, is Buddhism enough? Is practice enough? And I have come to see again, you know, hopefully there will always be people doing environmental work and social action work and people lobbying and fighting for, you know, voting reform and campaign reform and human rights and women's rights, immigration rights. But what we can bring that I think is unique, what we can bring to this work and to the many other kinds of work that all of us do, is that willingness, that willingness to face reality unflinchingly. To vow to see in ourselves and in another what we don't want to see or what we can't see. And when we don't want to, to ask with real curiosity, with real interest, what is this? How is this? And how does this fit with the rest of the picture that is me? And I ask myself, you know, can I do that? And I think, yeah, that is something I can do. 
And when I fail, and when I don't want to look, then I ask myself, well, why? Which is still a way of looking. And so my commitment is to not close my eyes. Or if I close them, to open them again. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. A poem by Izumi Shikibu, a Buddhist poet and noble woman, 10th, 11th century. She was said to be the greatest woman poet of the Heian period. I mean, that's really the work. That's the, the totality of the curriculum of the Bodhisattva Academy, to know myself completely, leaving nothing out. Because that, you know, that conflict and violence come out of denial. As I said, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, you know, when we, when we act out, and from you know, a whole range of acting out, from a tantrum to full-blown war. It really comes from that place of hurt. And denial, if you think about it, I mean, it's such an interesting concept. I mean, it's really, it's like the willful negation of what is, despite evidence to the contrary. It's such, a, such an interesting protective mechanism. Many years ago, uh, I, I went to um, many years ago, I was in Mexico and I was visiting, I wanted to visit the uh, cemetery where my mother is buried. And I had only been there once before. And uh, my father gave me directions and it's kind of, it was complicated to, to get there. It was in a just very kind of windy neighborhood in, in, um, in an already complicated city. And he gave me directions and he said, just look for the sign. There's a huge sign, Crematorio del Crepúsculo. And uh, you'll see it, it's right at the entrance. So you can't miss it. So I get in the car and I start driving. And I'm driving and driving and driving, and some of it kind of looks familiar. And there's an entrance that kind of looks familiar. I can't see the sign. I can't see the sign. So I'm just driving around and around and around for a couple of hours. And I was about to give up when I saw this um, security booth. And so I stopped and I asked the guy, you know, do you know where the crematory is? And he said, it's right here. This is the entrance. I said, but I was here last year and there was this huge sign. And he said, oh yeah, you know, we, we took it down. I said, why? And he points and he says, well, you see those, those um, apartments down there? And I said, yeah, you know, there's this hillside and there's these, you know, really modern, new looking apartments. And I said, yeah, I see them. And he said, well, you know, the, the administration uh, didn't think that people would buy an apartment here if they knew they had to drive past the crematory. Uh, so we just took down the sign 
because that way they can pretend it's not here. I swear that's what he said. <laughs> that way they can pretend it's not here. They drive every day and the crematorium is right there and they drive right past it, but that way they can pretend it's not there. And I think it's, that's a deciding moment in our lives when we decide we're done pretending. That's when we turn. That's the beginning of turning towards some form of practice, which is liberating, but also painful and more than a little bit scary. It can be overwhelming. I mean, you know, even as I describe, you know, the, the features of a student in this Bodhisattva Academy, it could be overwhelming when you just list them, you know, I'm not going to get angry and I'm not going to, you know, lash out at you and I won't resent you, da, da, da. you know, when I just list them like that, it's just like, ah, of course, it's never like that. You're just practicing one moment at a time, one interaction at a time, one situation at a time. I mean, you know, if Kuan Yin's head exploded 11 times as she was trying to save all beings, you know, we can expect we're going to feel a little overwhelmed now and then. But that's the thing, you know, the more you practice, you realize, you know, as my, my teacher said, you know, my, may my heart break so that yours doesn't have to be. I mean, talk about heroic. I hear that phrase and I hear his voice saying that almost every day. And I think to myself, may I be able to live up to that? But that's the thing, you know, I've realized, you know, as I practice, I realize, you know, your heart has an incredible capacity to heal and regenerate like Kuan Yin's heads. I mean, she had help. She had Amitabha, you know, putting another head in another one. And then giving her all those thousand hands and arms. But you realize, you know, your heart is not limited. It's not just this, this organ pumping blood. And you realize you have the capacity when you fall on the ground to use that ground to stand up. Because what else would you use? You know, so the very thing you fell on is what you use to pick yourself up the job you hate, the relationship that's not working, you know, the lack of you know, oomph you have today, tomorrow. You fail and you fall. And as you're lying there on the ground and you're you know, staring up at the sky on your back, you ask yourself, okay, what is necessary here? What did I miss? And what do I have to do now? And you check, you know, that all your limbs are working. You massage them a little bit. And slowly you get up and you dust yourself off. And if you can't do it alone, you reach for someone's hand. Another person who's standing on that very same ground. And they help you up. Because that's what bodhisattvas do for one another. I mean, even two people. If just two people come together to practice the way 
That is the Sangha. That's two people facing reality together. Two people saying, I will not let the world change me, move me toward fear or hatred. I mean, this is essentially the Bodhisattva's promise. I will not let you make me hate you. I will not join you there. I refuse to join you there because I have work to do and I need all of my energy for it. This is from Every Day is a Wide. Every day as a wide field, every page by Naomi Shihab Nye. And it's not the whole poem, it's just an excerpt. And there were so many more poems to read, countless friends to listen to. We didn't have to be in the same room, the great modern magic. Everywhere together now, even scared together now from all points of the globe which lessened it somehow. Hopeful together too, exchanging winks in the dark, the little lights blinking. When your hope shrinks, you might feel the hope of someone far away lifting you up. Hope is the thing. Hope was always the thing. What else did we give each other from such distances? Breath of syllables, Sing to me from your balcony, please. Befriend me in the deep space. When you paused for a poem, it could reshape the day you had just been living. Hope is the thing. And we don't speak of it much in Buddhism, perhaps because it implies anticipation, expectation, you know, desire even which is quite all right, if you ask me. But still, let me give it a, a slightly different name then. If not hope, then let's call it possibility. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.